0: This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Start your journey to becoming a great developer at Uh, 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 learn.thoughtbot.com.
1: That uh, minor disruption in
0: the interwebs. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is Wednesday, December 11th. My name is Ben Orenstein. I'm here today with Uncle Bob Martin. How are you, sir? I'm just fine, thank you. Is the way to get a nickname like Uncle Bob to write and speak prolifically for 43 years on programming? Is that what does it? Oh,
1: um, well... Um, you also have to work at a place where there is some guy who, uh, who believes it is his mission in life to give everyone a nickname, and then you have to hate the nickname, and then you have to quit that company, and then you have to miss the nickname and put it in your email signature, and then really regret doing that and take it out of your email signature, and then realize that everybody still wants to call you by that nickname. And then ultimately realize that it's actually a pretty good brand, and you might as well stick
0: with it. This sounds like like the seven steps of uh, accepting like denial or, or grieving. Seven it steps has of grieving. a lot
1: to do with that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it. It wasn't a thought through strategy.
0: I think it, it seems important that you hate it for a little while. <laughs> Any nickname that like is flattering is not going to work, right?
1: Yes, yeah, like the, the the gentle wise one. That probably wouldn't work.
0: Master Bob, <laughs> not so much. So you do a lot of things. What do, what do your days look like these days? I know you're a master craftsman over at Eighth Light. What does that entail? Do you just think deep thoughts and then have people write them down on tablets for you?
1: Uh, yeah, something like that. I, I climb mountains and come down and lightning strikes every once in a while. Um, I am the the master craftsman at Eighth Light, which is a privilege. It means that I get to um, to hang out with some very bright guys and every once in a while, give them a little lecture and go and visit their client sites and yell at their clients. and uh, it's, a, it's a terrific gig. Um, I also do a lot of my own work. So it's, it's not just an employment with 8th Light. I also do my own consulting work and my own training work. Uh, and, of course, I do the, the videos that are, um, are so popular nowadays, cleancoders.com. Um, and that's just a hoot. My daughter and I just have a blast with those things. I mean, where else would you ever get to dress up like Spock?
0: It's pretty obvious you're having a good time on those videos.
1: Yeah, yeah, we do. We have a good time.
0: Those screencasts, I think, are a really great example of something that I believe pretty deeply, which is it's you have to be entertaining if you're going to be informative. You have to be able to hold people's attention while you teach them stuff.
1: Yes, yeah. That's been a, um, something that I've, I've done for um, my entire career. I enjoy speaking. I enjoy engaging people. Uh, And I enjoy making the learning process fun because it's always been fun for me. Learning all by itself is just a great joy. And then if you can transmit that joy anyway at all, uh, you can make it contagious.
0: One of the things I noticed about the videos is you seem to, it's like every five minutes almost on the dot, the scene switches to something wildly different. Is that Was that almost intentional in thinking about attention spans?
1: No, it's, it's really not intentional. It's kind of instinctive, and it might actually represent my own um, uh, lack of attention span.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you just get tired of recording in that environment?
1: Well, it's just time for something different now.
0: I, I saw you a couple of years ago give a talk at RailsConf. Yes. Uh, you keynoted at RailsConf, and you were talking about... Uh, the, the the halt of Moore's Law. Moore's Law has broken down. We're not getting faster processors. We're getting more cores. And you said, you know, the, the thing that you're going to have to learn how to do as programmers moving forward is writing programs that you can split across cores. Um, and at the time, you were you were very uh, big on closure. You sort of said that's, you think that's a great way to go uh, toward that. Uh, where do you stand on those topics these days?
1: Well, I'm still in the same place on those topics. I think functional programming is something that... Uh... Um, we are, as an industry, going to have to get very familiar with and adopt, uh, primarily because of the multi-core problem, but also because it's a wiser way to write code. Wow. Over OO? Well, not over OO, in conjunction with OO. A lot of people make the mistake that OO and functional are um, antithetical, and they're not. They're orthogonal. They can be done at the same time. The, uh, the confusion comes about because people think of objects as being mutable. But objects don't have to be mutable. And once you have immutable objects and operations upon those objects that create other immutable objects, uh, you have a way to do functional OO. So functional OO is probably a good approach for the next several decades. So I'm still a big fan of closure. Although I am deeply intrigued by Erlang and the, uh, the Ruby uh, thing that fits into Erlang Elixir. I think that might also be very interesting. I think the days ahead are going to be uh, very interesting indeed
0: so you, you I think earlier used the phrase that, that we're going to have to learn functional programming, and then that's because of the the situation with processor speed but is is it also worth learning on its own merits because it's a, a good paradigm and it's good to know about
1: yeah absolutely it's it's a It's something every programmer ought to know almost instinctively um, It is a style of programming that, if you have not done it, will seem very foreign and very strange. And then once you're used to it, you'll think, well, why would I ever have done it differently? Um, and everybody should have this in their toolkit.
0: More general question. So if, if you were to graph the rate at which you were learning new things about programming, and like going back from sort of when you started until today, what does that graph look like?
1: <laughs> um, well, that would take me back a very, very long time to when I was 12. Um, so if we if we tried to graph it in memes per week. um,
0: (laughs) Programming memes.
1: Yeah, programming memes per week. uh, It would probably spike up very high for that first four or five years from age 12 to age 17, uh, where I was just learning at a fantastic rate just about anything I could about computers. Um, And then it would probably slow down a little bit because... Now you actually have to make money, and making money means that you have to apply what you know instead of just learning constantly. Probably slow down to some rate, maybe 80 or 70% of that spike, uh, and then just hang there at a constant rate from then on. Uh, And then as I get older and I don't have to earn a living, I can learn even faster so it starts to spike up again.
0: So uh, my, I was wondering if it went, if it would trend down over time, but it sounds like that's quite the opposite.
1: It's the bathtub curve. Starts out high, it levels out when you have to actually apply it, and then it grows again when you, when you can really have fun at the end.
0: So do you, do you, how do you, how do you learn and and play and improve these days with that free time?
1: I read a lot. Um, I spend a lot of my time reading, and I read all kinds of stuff: software stuff, science stuff, political stuff, anything I can get my hands on. Um, I also do an awful lot of playing, so, um, I will get a language and I'll fiddle with it. Just, just do, um, programs left and right little things. Uh, one of my favorites is to, um, to write an orbital simulator and watch planets orbiting a sun. That's just a lot of fun for me. The physics is interesting and the, the scenarios are fun to watch and it's a great program to write. Um, I'll try to use uh, any language I really learn. Well, I will try to use in some kind of, um, real setting. So for example, the Cleancoders.com website, the website where we sell these videos, uh, is all written in closure. And I've, I've been instrumental in, in that closure writing, although I didn't write it myself. You know, I participate in that. So lots of playing, lots of reading, lots of absorbing, um, any channel I can get my hands on, blogs, videos, whatever.
0: Mm-hmm. I noticed in a lot of your blog posts that you, and, and some of your videos as well, you reference uh, computer science papers. It looks like you, you're diving into the academic side of things as well.
1: Well, the early academics were guys that actually did stuff. Um, you know, they would be professors who were hired by folks to actually learn and apply. So in the 60s and 70s, somewhat in the 50s, Um, these guys were practitioners. Um, That's not so much the case nowadays. Nowadays, most of the really interesting papers, I think, are coming out of industry, not out of academia. Uh, And academia, to some extent, is trailing because the interesting work is happening in uh, industry.
0: So how will that play out then?
1: Well, I think it'll oscillate academia will understand that that's happening and then they will start to get pragmatic. And you can all, already see that happening with, with interesting work-study programs and uh, professors hiring their students out as uh, contractors and so forth. So I think it'll oscillate back and forth a little bit. But the, um, the real advances at the moment are happening in industry, taking advantage of academia 30 years ago. So here we are doing functional programming, right? And functional programming was invented in 1957, and it remained the purview of academics uh, all the way up until, gee, uh, five years ago, six years ago. And all of a sudden, it's bursting into the industry. And now the industry is taking it and um, really beginning to develop it.
0: You made an interesting point on the blog recently, uh, which is that as an industry, uh, software development is young in two dimensions. So if you look at the software industry, engineering industry as a whole, it's about 60 years old. And if you look at the practitioners of it, they're also young. We There's a huge demand for developers. it's It continues going up. And so we're sort of pulling in people from the bottom who are, you know, young. It's it's interesting to me. You don't – so you're someone who's been doing this for a long time and, is, and, and contributes a lot to the sort of the discourse in the industry itself. I don't feel like there are a lot of people like you. And it seems like it's partly because our industry is on the young side.
1: Yeah, you could probably name the old farts like me on, uh, on uh, one hand or two hands. Um, and that's just a matter of accident, right? There, it has been discouraged in our industry to remain a programmer for a long time. Uh, you have to go into management if you're worth anything. That's a huge mistake that our, that our industry has made because it cut off any chance of developing a a stable of guys with enough experience to shepherd the vast number of very young people who are entering the industry. So we wind up with this demographic glut of 20 and 30 year olds, and very few 40 year olds, hardly any 50 years old, and maybe 10 60 year olds in our entire industry. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but it's It's um, probably the right kind of curve. So who is going to teach the young ones coming in that all of the enthusiasm and ambition and drive that they have can be so badly channeled as to make them utterly impotent for five years when they don't feel impotent, right? They feel like they're conquering the world. And yet I can watch them out there in the startups and they're all working 90 hours a week and they're all making a horrible mess, and they don't understand that they are impotent in what they are doing. All that energy and enthusiasm is going right down the toilet.
0: Mm. It's it's interesting that our, in our, in our industry we think that that is that's working. Yes, <laughs> yes, <It's, laughs> right. It's it's we it's software engineering is such a craft where you need guidance from people that have been doing it for longer than you have. Like that's at, at ThoughtBot, that's like the the best thing we found is like you need to sit next to somebody and they need to help you a lot full time for a long time.
1: I, I think that's very important. Um, imagine a uh, an army of 22 year old carpenters with hammers glued to their hands and their feet, flailing away at a building, trying to hammer things down. And, and you know, they're working hard. They're putting in 90 hours, you know, and. And they think they're really talented because they can flail with all four limbs simultaneously, Um, but the house doesn't turn out all that well.
0: Yeah. So, so it's partly so we're missing these older voices partly because of the accident of how the industry is shaped, but also it sounds like we brought a lot of this on ourselves ourselves because we sort of say you know we promote the best programmers into managers.
1: Right. We we've thought of programmers as um, a kind of blue collar worker, Um, someone who is a a replaceable component, uh, all you need is 20 programmers, doesn't matter who they are. And so the ones that show a little bit of promise, we think, oh, that that person should be uh, in management doing marketing, or product product management or something. And we take them out of the technical arena. And that's unfortunate.
0: Yeah, agreed. I, I'm, I've always been of the the mindset that your your CTO should be an incredible programmer, should be like the best programmer at the company, as opposed to sort of like the lead manager of the managers of programmers. Uh, Yes, and
1: writing code. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. (laughs) You know, in the projects. Now, probably he's not writing code 40 hours, right? But he ought to be able to slip in there for uh, a day a week or a half a day a week, pair with the guys, um, and, you know, make it clear to all the guys that, he is competent in what he does. He understands the issues. And he is willing to go into the trenches and fight the battles with the troops.
0: Absolutely. I, when, I, when I interviewed at ThoughtBot, the, our CEO said, I'm just finishing up this feature. I'll be with <laughs> you in a second. And like that won more points with me than almost anything else. It's like the I feel like the distance, the further you get from the programming, the the quicker you slip into obsolescence or at least unrealistic expectations of how the world's going to work.
1: Well, certainly in this industry, because this industry moves so very rapidly that if you're if you're out of the technical arena for uh, you know six months, you've fallen pretty far behind.
0: Do you do you think that this um, this reality of our industry is a is a big part of why so many software projects fail?
1: I do. Yes. Yeah. I, I uh, And to mention one, let's talk about healthcare.com. Uh, that
0: was on my list.
1: What in the world happened there? Um, where were the mature elder leaders who could go to management and say, hey, guys, you can't ship this. How did that get turned on? <laughs> a, it just boggles my mind that Nobody in our industry, nobody uh, who was a programmer or a technical lead or a, a lead project manager could manage to somehow get this thing not to turn on.
0: I, I, like, I pulled a quote from that article, which is, you said, if I had to define professionalism in one sentence, I'd say, professionalism is the willingness to refuse to obey orders that do harm to others. Are uh, also a different way of wording it. A professional has the knowledge and responsibility to say no as loudly as necessary to prevent harm.
1: Yeah, it's that that last little bit um, as loudly as necessary, because many people have made the point that no was said. There were people saying no, but it was not said as loudly as necessary. And this might have been out of fear, and it might have been out of the you know the thought that well, if I say it too loud, I'm I'm overstepping my bounds. I might even lose my job. But it seems to me that a professional, by being a professional, immediately takes that risk and that obligation. I may be put in a position position where I must say no and that may cost me my job and that's okay because I'm a professional. Those are tough pills to swallow, but it's, what's def- it's what defines someone who's professional. A doctor will refuse to do things and the patient will fire the doctor. A lawyer will refuse to do things. And the client will fire the lawyer. And that's the right thing to have happen.
0: So part of being a professional is, is having principles.
1: Yes. Principles beyond the uh, employer-employee relationship. Yeah,
0: I like, the, I like the as necessary part as well. It was, it's not enough to say no in a way that simply is like a CYA sort of thing. Like, well, I, I told you this wasn't going to work. So now that I've said that, let's just keep going forward.
1: Yes, the I told you so is the mark of an abject failure. If you say I told you so, you are the one who has failed.
0: Why is that? Because you knew
1: and you did not manage to stop the train wreck. And then, you know, the train wreck happens. Well, I told you the train was going to crash. And yeah, but you knew you should have stopped the train from crashing somehow, even at the risk of your own job.
0: Uh, so I, I, was, I, was, I was digging through your archive. So I'm, I'm pulling up the greatest hits here. Um, you had a, a, an interesting article on where you clarified what you meant or what you mean when you say test first. So you people think of the TDD cycle as being uh, red green refactor, and you sort of put a little bit of a, a twist on that, uh, or sort of clarified that. You said wh- what you think of test first is is red, and then you clean the test, and then green, and then refactor. So unlike the production code, you can make the test code good before you before the test goes green. Uh, and so test first really just means that the tests come first. That was
1: the, uh, the upshot of that paper, and also of one of the videos I did, was that test first means that the tests come first. And they come first in the fact that you write them first, you refactor them first. Uh, they are, to some extent, more important than the production code. Because the tests allow you to reproduce production code, but production code doesn't necessarily allow you to reproduce
0: tests. And also, there are no tests for the tests.
1: Uh, well, <laughs> production code tests the tests and tests test the production code. I, I, um, I often equate this to the, uh, the principle of double entry bookkeeping in accounting. You know, accountants enter everything twice. It's not that the liabilities are more important than the assets. They just have to both be done. Uh, it's not that the, the production code and the tests are more important than each other. They just both have to be done. Although I think in in the case of tests and production code, tests have this trapdoor function um, aspect to them. And that is that it is possible to write a set of tests that will force you to write an entire application. But it's not possible to take an existing application and get all the tests out of it.
0: So they're important. So write them. Yes,
1: they're important. Write them, write them first. Uh, don't you're not doing test driven development if you're writing your unit tests second um write them first treat them as uh something that you absolutely have to have and if you have to have them, the only way to get them is to write them first
0: so you um you have an article on something that you call the clean architecture sort of a a set of ideas for building fairly complicated applications
1: or simple
0: ones <laughs> uh sure uh is is this something that gets uh, used fairly consistently in like 8th Light, for example? Do you come in and say, we're using this. This is how we do this.
1: Um, it's certainly something that the 8th Light guys know well and understand and try to promote at the clients that they work at uh, with varying degrees of success because often they're coming into legacy systems. Um, but yes, if we're starting a Greenfield project, certainly it would be done in that manner. Uh, and it's it's a very simple and straightforward kind of architecture, which decouples things that change at different rates. So UIs change at a different rate from business rules, so we decouple them. We put a a polymorphic boundary in between them. Databases uh, change at rates that are different from business rules, so we decouple them. Anything that changes at a different rate gets put behind a barrier, and then all the dependencies that cross that barrier point in the direction of the most abstract thing, generally the business rules. So usually what we'll have is the UI, depending on the business rules, the database, depending on the business rules, any incoming frameworks, depending on the business rules. And the business rules have no idea that any of those things exist. Everything is a plug in to the business rules.
0: Is the idea that that things tend to rely on things that change less often than themselves?
1: Yes, things will, things should rely in the direction of decreasing change. And usually business rules are the, are the most stable element. UIs are the least stable element. They change for the bizarrest of reasons. You know, people decide that, that they don't like the burnt umber color of, of something on an icon, and so they'll change the UI, um, whereas the business rules remain relatively stable. Right. Databases change because people want to do different schemas, or they've got different ideas, or they have to break tables apart, or God knows what. Uh, and that has nothing to do with business rules directly. So things depend in the direction of decreasing change.
0: Has has the majority of the of the programming projects that you've been you've worked on been uh, cons- of the consulting nature? Um,
1: you mean lately? Yes. Um, no one will pay me to write code anymore. Um, so I come in and I I yell at people a lot, and then I'll. I'll sit down with them and code with them for a little while and uh, review their designs and review their code uh, that kind of thing and I'll go into the the clients of Eight light and I'll do um, assessments and postmortems and so forth code reviews and that's the kind of consulting uh, work that I do nowadays
0: i was just wondering if, if if there's a different way that you or if you think the fact that the doing a lot of consulting projects sort of shapes the way you write code, as opposed to if you were doing working on a project that was a long-term engagement, a code base you worked with for three years, as opposed to three months or a shorter time period?
1: Oh, I don't know. Um, I've certainly learned a lot in in the last uh, uh, several decades. Uh, The code that I was writing in the 80s wouldn't look a lot like the code I write now. Whether or not it's the consulting aspect that's changed it, I kind of doubt, because I do an awful lot of... um, uh, open source projects. You know, I work in on fitness um, and I've put in a lot of years on fitness. And that's another example of, of code that I think embodies the architectural principles that I like to follow.
0: If, uh, if you could snap your fingers and, and start changing stuff in the world instantly, do you have any uh, things you'd tackle right away, particularly in the software world?
1: It's a very interesting question. And the answer is, if I had the power to snap my fingers, I wouldn't snap them. Um, because one of the most damaging things you can do to any complex system is make a significant and immediate change to it. So what I would rather do was you know, not snap my fingers and just start pushing gradually in a direction that I believe the industry ought to go, um, which is what I'm doing anyway, so I don't need the power to snap my fingers. Now, the, the direction that I'm pushing is towards professionalism, uh, towards ethics, principles, towards uh, practices that we know work. Uh, we, as a, an industry, cannot quite call ourselves a profession because we don't have a minimum set of standards that we follow. We don't have a defined set of practices and rituals that we obey. Uh, there's nothing, there's no secret handshake you know, that programmers can use to say, well, you know, we, we follow the same school of thought. Um, doctors have this, lawyers have this, carpenters and electricians have this. So far, we don't, and we need it.
0: Aren't we, don't we have something along those lines, like, you know, with agile methodologies and things like that, that have come to be pretty darn popular?
1: Agile is kind of the start of that. Um, and, and I would actually amend that and to say that extreme programming was actually the start of that. Agile was, unfortunately, a dilution of the practices that we learned out of extreme programming. And then over the last 14 years, um, those practices have ga- regained importance in the agile mindset. So what we're seeing now are agile practices uh, that were the original extreme programming practices. Those practices are a candidate For a set of professional disciplines, they may not be the ultimate set, but I think they're a very good first approximation.
0: Yeah, I agree, and I because I think I think they sort of give you a bit of that secret handshake. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't take a job somewhere that you know people didn't do TDD. There you go.
1: So there it begins with things like that. I'm not going to work if we're not going to do TDD. I'm not going to join a team where we can't pair frequently. I'm not going to join a team if we don't have a continuing integration server running all the time. Um, I'm not going to join a team if we don't have a, uh, an on-site customer or someone who is, is marshalling the requirements and can be, can be responsible for them. All of these practices uh, begin to turn into requirements.
0: Or, or principles like we talked principles about earlier.
1: Uh, a mode of working that we know works and they um, they help us define a minimum set of behavioral standards and code standards for that matter. You know what what is the minimum the minimum set of standards for our code? Now, if you go out there in the industry and you look at some of the code out there, it's it it can make you run, scream, and and set fire to everything behind you uh, so that it doesn't catch you and eat you. Um, we have a big problem in our industry with very very bad code uh, and we're gonna have to fix that um, there's been um, way too many bad uh, catastrophes and the catastrophes are getting worse so healthcare.gov was is was awful right that that that's a case where uh, a software failure interfered with a public policy, whether you agree with that policy or not, that should scare the hell out of you because the next public policy might be one much more important. And if our software can't cope with it, we could be in a really deep, deep, deep hole. Um, At some point or another, some software team is going to screw up so badly that, that um, there's a disaster of loss of life, tremendous loss of life. And at that point, the politicians of the world will decide they have to do something about it. And uh, if we're not there with a set of minimum standards that we follow, practices that we have adopted, if we can't convince those politicians that we have been behaving professionally and that this was an accident, if we can't convince them that we weren't being negligent then they'll have no choice but to uh, regulate us and uh, pass laws about what languages we use and what platforms we can program on and what books we have to read and so on. Uh, and that would not be a good outcome. I, I don't want to be a civil servant.
0: So you said that we have this problem in our industry where people are writing terrible code. And I, I, I uh, direct a chorus in my, in my off time. And one of the things we say is like, we like to complain about the guys that don't sing so well and one of the things we remind ourselves of is no one shows up to rehearsal wanting to sing poorly. You know, no one is there to sabotage the efforts of the group by, through singing poorly. And so I, I have to imagine that it's similar with programming. No one wants to do a bad job. And so somehow they have been failed or they're, they're failing to do something, but it's probably not in intent. I think there's two, two
1: issues here. Um, I have seen code written by people who are just clearly incompetent. They shouldn't be programmers. Uh, They don't have the mental wherewithal to do the job. And we do have to admit to ourselves that there are people who cannot think the way a programmer needs to think. Um, So there are people who shouldn't be programmers. But the other issue is much more problematic. And it's the idea that um, the programmer who's very talented believes that they are doing the best service to their employer by rushing madly, creating what they know to be a mess because they believe that uh, time to market is everything. And the, the logic there that's wrong is not so much that time to market is important, but that rushing is the way to get to market fast. That rushing attitude that says, I'll go back and fix it later once we're billionaires, um, is badly misplaced because you cannot go fast by making a mess, ever. And you might think, well, I I can go fast for a month by making a mess. No, you can't. Well, I can go fast for a week by making a mess. No, you can't. You can't even go fast for an hour by making a mess because the mess will slow you down and slow everybody down much more than any advantage you might have gained from it.
0: Mm, So if you want to go fast, go well, I think you say?
1: To go fast, go well, yes.
0: Do you, do you play Go by any chance?
1: Well, I have been known to, yes.
0: Okay. So one of my, there's, Go is, for those that don't know, full of lots of these little aphorisms that are supposed to help improve your play. And one that I love is, beware of going back to fix up. <laughs> it's like, you're, you're going to have, you're, you're going to run out of time to go back and fix up, and then you will pay for the thing that you have left undone, and you will pay at the most painful time. <laughs> and I think of that when I'm, when I'm writing code. I have this theory that the, the going back to refactor idea almost never works. Like, I've, I've been convinced by smart people sometimes, like, okay, yes, we agree that's a good change, but we don't want to do it right now. Uh, there's a bug in production, so we got to get this out, and then we're going to go back and fix that. And I'm just always so skeptical, because I've seen this fall by the wayside so many times. There's always this mythical, like, time when we will get to go refactor everything, or we'll remember to go do it, and it just... I've seen that not happen so many times. I'm just really skeptical of it these days.
1: Well, and and you should be. Um, Although there is nothing wrong with fixing an emergency bug in production and then refactoring. You have to have priorities, but you do have to do that refactoring. And that refactoring should be within an hour or two, right? Not something that you put at the end of the schedule. There should be no refactoring line on the project plan there should be no gantt chart blob that says here we will refactor refactoring should never appear on the project schedule it's just something you do all the time
0: right it's like you don't you don't have a line in there for like and then we will check the code into the the version control
1: yes yes or then we will wash our hands after going to the bathroom um it's just something you always do I
0: hope. Hopefully. And when, it's, when it becomes a thing that you don't always do, then it doesn't get done, in my experience. Well. It's as soon as you put like a to-do item, like go back and refactor the, the whatever, it's like, yeah, that's I feel better because I wrote it down, only it's just not going to happen. Yes. Do you have any uh, new books in your kicking around?
1: In my head, yes. Um, I'm supposed to be writing one called Clean Architecture. Um, and um, the words are certainly forming in my head. I need to write them.
0: How do you, what does your writing process usually look like?
1: Well, my writing process usually works like um, taking an hour or two every day, uh, writing a page or two, accumulating 800 pages, throwing out 400, assembling the rest of them into something that I think is reasonable and shipping it. I haven't begun the process of writing anything once a day yet uh, because the words have been not quite there in my head. And I'm also doing all these videos, and they take up an awful lot of energy and time. Um, so I'm trying to sort that out because it's a book I do need to write.
0: Do you, do you stop and think, hey, I probably have only N books that I can get done? What's most important to say?
1: Yes. Yes, I do think that. <laughs> yeah.
0: So this, one, this one's at the top of the queue.
1: It, it's the one I'm certainly going to do next, yes. I just have to start writing.
0: It's, it's that daily habit that really is the important part, right?
1: Yes, that. And, and you know, I did start about a year ago, I started writing it. And I didn't like what was coming out, and I just threw it all away and I stopped, and I've stopped now for about a year, thinking about it and juggling it about it in my head and i and it was just in the last three or four weeks that something gelled, and I thought, "Oh, I bet I could write this now um and so I've got the got my schedule lined up so that I can um start to put some words down on paper here pretty soon.
0: Do you have a, a publisher that you're working with? Oh sure,
1: yeah, uh Pearson. Addison Wesley,
0: yeah. So do you just send them an email and say, I need to think about this for another year. I'll be in touch later.
1: I don't sign contracts anymore until I know exactly what I'm going to do. Yeah, I, I have warned them that I'm thinking about a book. And so they're, they're kind of sitting there going, oh, good. <laughs> and my, my publisher will write to me about once every three months and say, "How oh, that idea coming? Yeah, I'm still thinking about it. Once I have the, the book really in my head and I've got a couple of chapters written, then I'll get a contract signed.
0: What makes you happiest? Well, uh,
1: my family. Um first and foremost. Uh, and I have a wonderful family. I got four children. I've got five grandchildren. I got a great wife. Um it's just been a terrific ride for me. So yes, what makes me happy is that's certainly it. Career-wise, um I, I just love what I am doing. Um I I love getting in front of people and um and talking and, and telling them. A, about software and teaching them. Um, I, I love the videos I'm doing. It's just an absolute hoot. Of course, that involves family. My daughter is my camera person and my director and and producer and um, my son is a um, business partner in the whole venture. And so I, I have an awful lot of family contact there. Um, and of course, nothing quite beats Writing a module and cleaning it and looking at it and thinking, my goodness, that's a nice piece of code.
0: Awesome. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Uh, so uh, Uncle Bob blogs at blog8 uh, He gives talks a lot. If you get a chance to go see a talk, go see them. They're great. If people want to get in touch with you, what's a good way to do that?
1: Um, my Twitter handle is Uncle Bob Martin. Um, my um, email address is Uncle Bob at cleancoder.com. And there's always the videos, cleancoders.com, where you can see lots of my talks and what I do and my lessons. And there's, uh, there's a an email group there, the Clean Coders email group, where we often discuss issues of code.
0: Well, thank you very much for coming by and chatting with me.
1: It's been my pleasure. If you'd like to access show notes
0: for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giantrobot slash 79. Today's podcast was recorded and produced by Mike Manor and edited by Igor Stolarsky. Thanks for listening.